You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. It's good to come together uh, on this Good Friday and to remember uh, why we have hope today, why... um, why we celebrate as Christians. And uh, this morning we want to think specifically about Jesus' time uh, in the garden. Uh, We've entitled this sermon, Alone in the Garden. Martin Luther says this, When I consider my crosses, tribulations, and temptations, I shame myself almost to death, thinking what they are in comparison to the suffering of my blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, we want to take time to think about the Lord's incredible suffering that he went through on our behalf. Specifically, we want to consider how alone he was in those final hours of his life. He had people around him, but humanly speaking, he was all alone. No one understood what was happening, and no one understood the burden that Jesus was carrying. We know that the compassionate word of a friend or the prayers from someone who truly loves you and cares for you are a great comfort in your hours of great trial. And yet, for Jesus, he had none of that. In fact, rather than being a part of the comfort for Jesus, they were only reminders to Jesus of how alone he really was. This morning, as we reflect on Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, may we be reminded of all that he went through on our behalf. He went through this alone so that we would never have to be alone. And this is why we have hope today in 2021. Let me pray for us before we get into the text. Lord God, we thank you so much for this time together this morning. God, we thank you that, Lord, you know every heart here today. God, you know what we need to hear from you. Lord, I pray that as we study your word, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us. Lord, that your spirit would help us to understand these things, whether this is the first time we're hearing these things or whether this is the hundredth time we're hearing these things. God, I would pray that these things would impact our hearts. Lord, for your word is true. And Lord, we desire this morning to know you more and to love you better as a result of this gathering today. So God, would you lead this preacher as we study your word? It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, look at Mark 14 this morning. The same text that uh, Joel has already read will be the text that we'll study most of this morning. I wanna just kinda set up the text, uh, or the context of what we're reading. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have just uh, partaken in the Passover. First, Mark tells us how it came about that they were able to have a Passover together. And then he tells us of the events of the Passover. Uh, the fact that um, while they were eating together, Jesus revealed that one of them was going to betray him. And then he went on to celebrate Passover with them. And as he did, he talked about a new covenant coming through his body, through his blood. 
and that he would not drink of the vine again until he entered into the kingdom of God. There's going to be a great cost coming, but then his kingdom would come. Nobody seemed to really understand still the significance of these things. They're stressed, they're worried, but they really don't understand what's happening. And we're told that they sang a hymn before going over to the Mount of Olives. The, the hymn that likely they sang was from Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. It's what the Jewish people would do in their celebration of Passover. would go through Psalm 113 to 118, and as they got to the end, they would sing these hymn, this hymn. And Jesus and his disciples go over to the Mount of Olives. They go across the Kidron Valley, and this is where they're going to spend a short time together. By this time, it's after midnight, likely, and uh, we know that if, you, if you've been around the church for a while, we know that Jesus' night is far from over. But I want to look at just five observations that set the Lord Jesus alone in the garden. Five observations that set the Lord Jesus alone in the garden. The first is that he's alone in his perception. He's alone in his perception. In other words, he alone knows what's happening. He alone understands the events that are, that are going on. It's interesting, as you go through the Gospels, really not a whole lot said about Jesus in the first 30 years of his life. Really little time is spent there. And then we have a whole lot more time uh, spent learning about his ministry years. And then greatest of all, the Gospel writers, each and every one of them, spend time looking at each day of this last week. And as we look at this last day, there's like these intimate details of what was happening hour by hour. And what you see as the gospel writers slow things down is that Jesus understood everything that was happening. He, he understood what was going on. He knew that night that Judas is coming to that spot. He knew that Judas was about to come and betray him in the garden. And yet what? He remains there. I don't know about you, if you knew that someone was coming at, what time is it now? Uh, if someone was coming here at 11 o'clock, and they were coming to arrest you, what would you do? You would leave, right? I see a pastor, I've got to go, right? And, and you would leave. But Jesus stays. Why? Because it's part of the plan. He knows it all. Sometimes we think that because he was fully God, as well as being fully man, that maybe it was easier for him somehow. Again, I, I think about this whole concept of, of, of what Jesus is going through. We, we get stressed out about what might happen, Right? We get anxious about the things that might happen. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's not just thinking what, about what might happen. He knows what's going to happen. And yet he remains firmly in the plan of the Lord. Jesus has known what was going to happen this day far before this day. He knew it as they rode in to Jerusalem that Sunday before. As people are crying out, Hosanna, he knows that this hour of darkness is coming. He knew it as he worked with his disciples the years before. He would talk about this day coming. And being God, he's known this from all eternity past, that this day was coming. 
As we think about this time, and maybe as we think about what we're going through right now, I think it should be a comfort to us that these events are not happening randomly, right? These things are not just happening by coincidence. They're happening under the watchful eye of the Lord. On the one hand, we see evil men making sinful choices, right? No one's forcing them to make these choices. They're making them out of their own free will. And at the same time, we see God's sovereign hand over it all. You have these, these, these two things happening at the same time. Edwards says this, divine grace uses even human evil for its saving purposes. It's a good word for you and I today. The Lord is still very much sovereign over all that is happening as my, mankind makes sinful choices day in and day out. What a comfort to know that God still works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Cooper says this, what believers experience is not the result of circumstance, but a wise and good dis distribution from our loving Father's hand. So whatever you're going through today, remember God knows. He knows it all. He knows what your tomorrow is going to be, your next day. He knows everything about your life, and he's watching over you. And whatever is going on in your life right now, he is allowing it. And so look to him, trust in him, just as Jesus did on this day. Christ was alone in his perception. He's also alone in his pain. The previous Saturday, Judas has decided that he's going to betray Christ. He, Jesus has just revealed to everyone else during the Passover meal that this is going to happen. But Judas, on the Saturday before, he is with Jesus. They're at the home of Mary and uh, Sorry, and Mary, they're at a home, and Mary comes and anoints Jesus with this ointment. Now, this ointment, this perfume, is so expensive, it would have been like a year's wages, right? So we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars being poured out on Christ. Why? To prepare him for his burial. The disciples say, well, man, that seemed like a waste. It could have been sold and used for the poor. And Judas is at the front of the line saying that. Why? Because he was someone who would steal from the money. He's so upset about this that he leaves and he goes to the chief priest and he says, look, I'll betray him to you. And so for 30 pieces of silver, he's decided he's going to turn his back on the one who's loved him perfectly, the one who has poured his life into him over the last three years. He's going to betray him over 30 pieces of silver. But Jesus is not through with the bad news yet. As he addresses the disciples as they come to the Mount of Olives, Jesus says to them, verse 27, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. No longer is Jesus singling out just one of the disciples. He tells them that all of them will fall away. In accordance to what it says in Zechariah 13, 7, hundreds of years earlier, God had predicted that when the shepherd is struck, that the sheep would flee. And this was being spoken of Christ. This falling away is is to become fulfilled with disgust or revulsion for someone. So afraid of their own lives, they will do whatever it takes to show that they're not with Jesus anymore, as we'll see with Peter in just a moment. 
Can you imagine hearing these words for the first time? Peter and the rest of the disciples, they can't believe that this is true. In fact, Peter says that in verse 29. Even though all fall away, I will not. Listen, I I don't know, I can't speak for James and John and Andrew. I I don't know what they're going to do, but what I can tell you, what I know for sure, I will never fall away. I would never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. I mean, we're not talking a week away. We're not talking a month away, a year away. We're talking that night. Again, it's probably after midnight already. So he's saying, in the next few hours, Peter, you're not going to deny me just once. You're going to deny me three times. You know, turn your back on me. France says this, a threefold denial is not simply a momentary succumbing to pressure, but a deliberate disassociation. This is not merely weakness, but apostasy. Peter's not simply going to desert Christ. He would deny that he had anything to do with Jesus. He still can't believe this is true. And so in verse 31, he says this, he says emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all say the same. Of course, Peter usually seems to be the loudest in the crowd, and so he gets the focus. But everyone's saying the same thing. We would die. We we have no idea what's about to take place. We're starting to understand that it's not good. But we we know this. We We would die with you. We'll die alongside you. We would never deny you. Well, we're going to look at Jesus' prayer with Peter, James, and John in just a moment, but I want us to go straight to the fulfillment of them denying him. Look down at verse 43. It says, immediately, while he is still speaking, this is Jesus speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Judas had slipped out during the Passover No one really understood what he was doing. Jesus alone knew what he was doing. And he had went to the chief priests. And now he's coming with this crowd, these guards. They're they're from, they have the the authority of the religious establishment of the day. They're coming with swords and clubs because they're going to make sure that Jesus doesn't get away. We read in verse 44, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, this, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And lead him away under guard. Always wondered, like, why this way? I mean, it's not like Jesus was someone like me or like, you know, like, who are you? Right? Like, I mean, he's pretty famous in Israel three years later, right? Everybody knows who Jesus is. But it's dark. So, so maybe... There needs to be some kind of signal to, to make sure they don't arrest Peter by mistake or someone else. I mean, so, so there's got to be some kind of signal. And so he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and kiss him. That's, that's who it's going to be. That will be the signal. When I kiss him, then you seize him. And this is something he would have done. 
in a normal basis, he, as, a, as, a, as a follower of Christ, as someone who would have loved him, he would have greeted Jesus with a kiss. But why this on this night? Maybe it's just part of the wickedness of it all. I mean, you could have just come disappointed right here. Instead, it's a kiss. I mean, why not go full evil and punch Jesus, right? Why not, why not that? Why a kiss? And yet that's what he does. I, I, I'm not sure what Judas is thinking at this point. Jesus has already revealed that he knows. Like there's no element of surprise here, but sin makes you stupid. And so this is the plan. I also wonder about the crowd that's with Judas. Are they a little nervous? I mean, they've heard the stories about Jesus. He's walked on water He's healed people. He's brought people back from the dead. He's calmed a storm. I mean, he's a pretty powerful guy. If we try to seize him, will we be hurt? I'm not sure what they're thinking, but they come with swords and clubs, and they're intent on one purpose. They're going to arrest him. And so we read in verse 45, and when he came, he went up to him. Judas comes up to Jesus at once, and he said, Rabbi, a term that should have been used to, for honor and respect, and he kisses him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. And so they want to make sure he's not going to get away. And so they grab him. As you put all the gospel accounts together, it's Peter who pulls the sword, goes for a head, and gets an ear. And Luke tells us that Jesus picks up that ear and puts it back on him. And he rebukes them for what they're doing. Why arrest him now? He's been at the temple. Why come in the dead of night to do this thing? But the plan has been set in place. And we read in verse 50, and they all left him and fled. No one remains with Jesus. Mark tells us not only did everyone leave, but there was even some embarrassing situations and resulted as a, as a part of that. Verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This, this crowd has recognized that this one is with Jesus. Scholars think this could have been actually Mark himself. Not a disciple of Jesus at that time, but a follower of him perhaps. And he's come, and he's just wearing this linen cloth. Maybe he had decided to come late at night to find Jesus. And when they go to grab him, they grab the linen cloth, and he just keeps running. And the cloth is left behind, and he does not care. He's more afraid for his life than he is embarrassed about the situation. And so he flees. Peter, it seems like he's having a little bit of a remorse as to what's just happened. And so we're told in the Gospels that he, he follows at a distance. And as he, Jesus, they start starting this, this mock trial with the Sanhedrin. Peter finds a fire close by. He's sitting there. 
And then he proceeds to deny Jesus three times, just like Jesus said. We read in Mark 14, 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter, remembering the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus has been abandoned by all those closest to him. In his greatest hour of need, everyone has abandoned him. Maybe you know pain from those closest to you. Take heart this morning that Jesus understands. He knows the pain of people who should be there for you, but were not. But notice how Jesus responds. As, they, as everyone ran from him, he didn't yell, you cowards, get back. I mean, he didn't, he didn't say anything. He was just gentle and lowly. He knew Judas was coming with that kiss. If I was Jesus, I might have matched that with a punch, right? But not Jesus. So loving, even when those hurt him, those closest to him hurt him. May we follow his example. If you're a follower of Christ, you should expect pain, hurt, rejection. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When this happens, may we respond as Christ did. If we were to continue to read in Mark, we would read about the end of this mock trial, the, the, the chief priest handing Jesus over to the Romans for, this, for the purpose of him being crucified. They will spit on him. They will mock him. They will beat him. They will scourge him. And then he'll be placed upon a cross. Jesus will say very little from this moment on. But if we go back to the garden, we see that Jesus had wrestled with getting to this point. We see Jesus alone in his prayer. They'd come to the mount. They'd came to this garden called Gethsemane, which is also in Hebrew it's called the oil press likely a place where they would take all the olives from the orchard there and, and press those olives into oil. Eight of the disciples stay in one place, and then Jesus takes his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, with him. We read in verse 33, And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He takes them with him because that's what we would all want. We would want someone with us when we're going through our greatest hour of trial. But now the weight of what is about to happen is coming upon Christ. To be distressed is, is to become excessively affected 
by emotion. To be troubled is to, ex to have extreme mental or spiritual anguish and distress. The, the weight of what is coming is falling upon Christ because he understands it's not just going to be rejection by those closest to him and being abandoned that way. It's not just going to be the physical pain. There's spiritual pain coming unlike Christ had ever known for all of eternity. He was going to be forsaken by the Father. Cooper says this, not only would Jesus suffer great physical agony, but he would bear all the sins of the world. Past, present, future. He would become the sin bearer. He would be forsaken by his own fa father. So overtaken by this grief, Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, James, and John in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So overwhelmed is Christ, he feels that he could die. We can't imagine what that would have been like. To, to know that the eternal wrath of God was going to be poured on himself as he hung upon that cross. For my sin, for your sin. Knowing that the perfect fellowship that he's enjoyed with the Father for all of eternity would be broken at that moment. None of us can appreciate what he's going through. So he asks the three closest friends he has to watch. Later we'll see that the idea of watching here is pray. Be alert, pray. As believers, many of you know the comfort and encouragement and hope that is brought when someone else comes along and prays with you and shares the burden with you. This is what Jesus is asking of them, but what we find out is that he is alone in his prayer. And we're told that Jesus went off and prayed, and we're going to look at the content of that prayer in just a moment. But as he goes off, he comes back. We read in verse 37, and he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Guys, I get it. You, you want to stand with me. You said that you're going to die with me, but you're weak. The only way that you can do this is to pray. The only way that you could stand is pray, so pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus goes away and he prays again. Verse 40, and again he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Can you imagine? Like what do you say? What do you do? They, they're, they're, you know, they're like, do you know how late it is, Jesus? Like they're watching him Go through extreme anguish. And they can't, for a few more minutes, stand beside him in prayer. Jesus is alone in his prayer. 
He went away, came back again, came a third time, and he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. I think there's still a lot we can learn from what Jesus did in the garden. In his greatest hour of distress, he prayed. He poured out his heart to the Father, as we're going to see in just a moment. It's a good word for you and I today when you are in stress, when you don't know what to do, you ought to call out to the Father. And you should do as Jesus did. You should ask others to pray with you. When we're feeling exhausted or weak, we must pray. When we're overcome by the circumstances of life, we should pour out our hearts to the Father. We should seek others to pray for us. But sadly, this night, Jesus prayed alone. What did he pray? How did he pray? This brings us to our fourth observation that set the Lord Jesus alone. He was alone in his piety. He's alone in his piety. To be pious is to show a dutiful spirit of reverence for God or an earnest wish to fulfill religious obligations. We go back in the text. We see that Jesus, after stepping away from Peter, James, and John, we believe that not so far that that they could not hear what he was praying, but he goes a little bit of a distance from them and he falls to the ground and he prays. This is not the normal posture for prayer, but it shows us what's going on in the Lord Jesus Christ's soul. He's on the ground. He's pouring out his heart to the Father. And he asks if it were possible, but the hour might pass from him. Here we see Jesus' full humanity on display. Is there any other possible way for this to happen? Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, such intimacy. Jesus the Son calling out to the Father. English, we could use this word daddy. There's just this intimate relationship that the Son has with the Father. He's he's crying out to him. He affirms that all things are possible for God. That, that, That it is possible for him to change any situation. He's asking, is there another way than for me to become the sacrificial lamb? Is there another way for for me to avoid having your wrath poured out on me? And he asks, remove this cup from me. This cup is, is symbolic of the punishment, the wrath that is coming. Can you remove it from me? Edward says this, Jesus' prayer is not the result of calm absorption into an all-encompassing divine presence, but an intense struggle with the frightful reality of God's will and what it means to fully submit to it. The fundamental humanness of the prayer is evident in his imploring God in his direct address, take this cup from me. This is an intense struggle that he's having with the Father. He knows that this is the will of the Father, and yet he's, is there another way? But note how he ends his prayer. Yet not what I will, but what you will. 
So intense is his prayer that Luke says in Luke 22, 44, and being agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He's in extreme anxiety, but he prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus prays this three times. What a lesson, again, for you and I when it comes to prayer. To come pouring out your deepest hurts and fears and frustrations, asking that God might change those situations, knowing that he has the power to do so, but at the end of it all, wanting more than anything that the will of the Father be done. Francis says this, Prayer so understood consists not in changing God's mind, but in finding our own alignment with God's will. Where our desire is not in line with God's purpose, it is the former which must give way. It is in Jesus' instinctive acceptance of this sense of a priority that he will find strength over the next 24 hours. And so he, one more time, submits to the will of the Father. May we learn from Jesus' incredible hour of wrestling in prayer and submit our desires to the will of the Father above all else. Because Jesus did, we have hope today. And we close by looking at the fact that he was alone in his purpose. Alone in his purpose. Verse 49 has said, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. From Genesis 3 on, the Lord God had revealed that there was one who was coming, who would deal with sin, who would deal with death, who would deal with Satan. Jesus was that one who was to come. Only he could remove the debt that you and I owed. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ has come that we might have life in 2021. Over the last 2,000 years, people have come to understand the significance of the events that happened on this day. That what was accomplished by Christ submitting to the will of the Father, of him hanging on a cross, and my sin and your sin being placed upon him, and the wrath of God being poured on him for that sin for the last 2,000 years, people have understood that on the cross, Jesus took care of our sins, and that anyone who would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus went through incredible suffering for our salvation. May we never take that for granted. We, may we never see what our sins, may we, may we, we never fail to see what our sins deserved. It's my prayer this morning that currently there's no one under the wrath of God. Well, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm okay. How, how is it that I would be under the wrath of God? It's our sin it's our rebellion against God and his ways that places us under his wrath. 
And the only way for that wrath to be removed is to believe on Christ's finished work on the cross. Every sin has to be punished. It can be punished by you taking on that punishment or you can give it to Christ and place your trust in him. This morning I pray that everyone here has placed their trust in him. That you would know that Christ knew the full plan. He knew that not only would he die, but that he would rise again. We see that in verse 28. He said to the disciples right after he had told them that they would all deny him, he said, and after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Again, we see Christ's love, the scattering of the disciples. It was, it was massive. They all went their own separate ways. And it wasn't until Galilee that they're all back together again. But Jesus knew he would rise again. He knew that he would go before them to Galilee and that he would restore them one more time to be his followers and that they would fulfill the purpose that God had for them and they would proclaim this good news throughout all their lives until they would pay the ultimate price for following Christ. And we still hear of these things today because of their faithfulness. Generation after generation, God has saved people from the wrath that was due them. Our God is a God who forgives. This morning, have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your faith in Jesus so that you might be forgiven and have your debt removed? If you have never done so, then I'm going to plead with you today. Today, be reconciled to God. Do not put, off it for an, uh, put it off for another day. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. And so today be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. As you repent of your sin and you place your trust in him, God declares you righteous through Jesus Christ. Jesus was alone in the garden. Alone in his perception, in his pain, in his prayer, in his piety and in his purpose. Jesus was alone and went, all, went through all that he did so that we would never have to be alone. Jesus has a made, a way, made a way for us to be reconciled to God through him, and this is what we celebrate today. This morning, if you have placed your trust in Christ, remember that you are never alone. He is with you this morning. He understands your pain your disappointments, your wrestlings, and he asks you to trust in him. Because he endured, we have hope for all of eternity. And we pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for the finished work of Christ. We're so thankful that, Lord, even though you were all alone, you did not give up. Lord, you endured the pain, the shame, the suffering, and the wrath so that we might have life today. God, thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, and your compassion towards us. God, I, I pray this morning, if there are anyone here who just knows about you, but they've never repented of their sin, they've never placed their 
lives in your hands. They've never trusted in you for salvation. God, today, we're praying that they would be saved. God, help them to understand these things that we've spoken of this morning. Lord, that they might have life and have it eternally. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.